If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dana Weeks and Dave Odard. I was going to talk about the Emergency Act inquiry here, but if I do, I'm scared I'll be blamed for causing it. Oh! Here's oh! Oh! It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, this guy, Robert Gordon, played in town uh, quite a few times uh, at this ain't Hollywood and uh, about, about, uh, around and about and such. So uh, sad to hear. Uh, was signed to RCA in the late 70s after the death of Elvis Presley. And um, the rest is history, as they said. All right. And a lot of you going, who? Who? Who the heck is that? Well. There you have it, right there. Uh, this was around the time of the Stray Cats, all that sort of stuff. All right, enough of that. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. So anyway, uh, uh, lots of stuff going on today, including including the uh, continuation of the Emergency uh, Emergencies Act inquiry. Uh, JT is back uh, peddling on the conversation he had with uh, the Ottawa mayor. And this was on February 8th. So this was 10 days, 10 days after uh, the occupation started in uh, Ottawa with the truckers and such, that now they're looking for uh, Doug Ford. Uh, to try to get them out of it and uh, shaming him and calling, saying hiding, saying he was hiding. And then we do a little bit of research and uh, we remember that when the weekend that all of this happened and they started arriving, uh, the prime minister who had tested negative for COVID-19 still was following the guidelines and, uh, and had to be quarantining during this time. So uh, let's remember that when it comes to hiding, even with a negative test, I might add. Apparently you can't talk either. All right. So, uh, uh, and and now, of course, uh, he's being asked about all of this today, and uh, it, it's kind of bizarre to listen to uh, him backpedaling and try to getting out of the, the shaming that he and the Ottawa mayor did uh, to the premier, or tried to do, uh, on day 10, day 10 of the uh, of the uh, convoy. So the Emergency Act inquiry today talks about OPP intelligence saying the convoy is going to stay early on this, despite the mayor saying earlier they had no intelligence or only something from a hotel organization. Uh, this simply not true. OPP said the convoy uh, is planning to stay. Uh, they said that the city and the police ignored this intelligence. Uh, there was never a plan in place. If, in fact, they didn't leave, which, of course, they didn't. And then uh, speaks of lots of infighting with the police and the senior officials uh, of, of the day in regard to all of this. Well, it appears Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson, on his way out, uh, is defending Prime Minister Trudeau right till the dying end, perhaps hoping for a nice appointment afterwards. Uh, here's what Global News' Abigail Beeman had to say about all of this. For hours, Jim Watson spoke calmly and carefully. We were a bit like the meat in the sandwich. Ottawa's mayor has decades of political experience, but also just days left in office. And he voiced multiple concerns with local police. One of the frustrations I did have with, with Chief Slowly when he said this is not going to be a police solution. The province. It was frustrating uh, that the province was uh, not as um, 
responsive. And the feds. My point was, I can't go and start criticizing the province if you still haven't given me a commitment for the number of officers we need it from the RCMP. For not getting convoy trucks out of his city fast enough. It was uh, teetering on lost control. We lost control in the red zone. It was lawlessness. Watson complained police were slow to tell him how many officers they needed. Once he got a number, a letter to the Ontario Premier shows he asked for 1,800 officers February 7th. Watson says it still took too long to act and that Doug Ford wouldn't take part in meetings. The Premier uh, was adamant that he did not feel it would be useful to have three levels of politicians sitting around a table. I I think he felt it would be a waste of time. We work collaboratively with with the mayor and the the prime minister. A readout of a February 8th call with the prime minister shows Justin Trudeau accused Doug Ford of hiding for political reasons. I share the view that at the end of the day, um, you know, both the prime minister and you heard the premier yesterday of Ontario say that they were standing shoulder to shoulder. Tuesday's exhaustive testimony wasn't just about placing blame. The mayor acknowledges there were many, quote, failure points along the way. And whether it was the city, the province, or the federal government, Watson says action didn't happen fast enough. Abigail Beeman, Global News, Ottawa. Action cannot happen if there is no plan. You can't ask 1,800 officers to come up if there's no plan. And there was not a plan. Here is the former chair of the Police Services Board talking about her addresses with the uh, former police chief uh, slowly. On, uh, this is Diane Davies. Uh, Davis, rather, on uh, on on the status of this convoy and him feeling it was going to be over in no time despite all of this intelligence. He said to me, what are you so worried about? And I, I, I told him just what I told you, the, the number of tracks, the size of those tracks, the amount of money that they have. And, and he, he said that he would be surprised if they were still here on Monday. There you have it. So the police chief and uh, the upper uh, officials within the the police department, within the uh, police services board, within the city, all at loggerheads. And now looking for someone else to blame. Uh, This continues for another five weeks. All right. uh, uh, You know, this guy that I'm about to talk about, he was uh, sort of a fringe performer, rockabilly uh, revivalist, some are calling him. But, you know, that all happened in the late 70s and uh, early 80s. Remember the Stray Cats and all that sort of stuff? They had commercial success with it. Robert Gordon, one of those guys out of uh, uh, New York City who, uh, and from what I understand, this was all around the time that Elvis passed away. RCA tapped this guy to, you know, hopefully keep that sound whatever going and uh, the rest is history as they say he passed away at the age of 75 but uh, he played hamilton many 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 times including at this ain't hollywood and we're trying to get lou on a little later on to uh to talk about all of this and other stuff going on in the city including another event that i've uh, failed to tell you about but coming up this friday uh teenage head you know the movie um, uh, the uh, documentary that was done by uh, by Doug Aerosmith is going to be premiering. Picture my face, pre- 
premiering at, well, not really premiering because we've seen it, but at the uh, uh, Hamilton uh, Art Galleries, Art Gallery of Hamilton's uh, festival going on this week. So Friday night, uh, we're going to screen the documentary, and then members of the band are going to be there, and we're going to have a little question, a little Q&A thing. So uh, it can be a pretty cool night, Friday night. Uh, and you gotta get your tickets in advance at, uh, the Art Gallery of Hamilton, uh, talking about Teenage Head, celebrating the music and life of Teenage Head. And of course, we'll screen, uh, the doc, Picture My Face. And as I mentioned, Doug Aerosmith, who we're trying to get on for tomorrow, or will be on tomorrow, is, uh, the director of that piece. All right. On that note, uh, in regard to Robert Gordon, let's bring in Eric Elper, music publicist and commentator. He's with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, am I making too big of a stink of this? Uh, Robert wasn't really well known. However, for those that were in the punk scene, the new wave scene, uh, the rockabilly scene of the late 70s, early 80s, he was quite a significant figure. Uh, talk a little bit about his, his life and times and, and the place he had. Yeah, for sure. You, you know, he wasn't as big as the Stray Cats, especially in the early 80s when the Stray Cats were selling millions of records around the world. And part of that is just because I think people gravitated towards bands. They loved um, Buddy Holly and the Crickets. They hmm. loved Bill Haley and the Comets. And if you like that kind of music growing up or before the Beatles took over the world between, I don't know, let's say Elvis period 1956 to 1964, they were really Really all about bands and uh, um, so somebody like Robert Gordon definitely helped move the rockabilly movement to more of a worldwide phenomenon that still I mean there are still local scenes in pretty much yeah. every major city in North America where you look at them and if you go down to the clubs where those artists are playing it would still sound and look like 1956 it's, it's astonishing really um, but one of the great um, rockabilly musicians for sure one of the nicest people um, when surfing online uh, once the news hit nobody had a bad word to say about him it was all very very kind with the way that he treated people and he's got a brand new album comes that comes out on November the 25th called Hellified um, so wow. that's kind of sad too yeah he did it with uh, uh, Chris Spenning who is a British guitarist yes. who he is long recorded with uh, and that's on Cleopatra Records and it comes out on November 25th what do you know about that uh, material um, not a whole lot. In fact, I, I don't even think Cleopatra really did a lot of promotion for it um, as of yet. But um, I'm sure that in the next couple of days, we're going to be hearing more and more about um, who is on the record. Um, Robert and Chris have really basically toured the world over um, mm -hmm. in the last 40 years or so, uh, playing in Germany and France and the UK. Um, it had longtime collaborator Albert Bouchard on it, um, the drummer for Blue Oyster Cult. Um, that Albert, same name. Uh, it has a bunch of original songs, uh, including a song called One Day Left that Robert Gordon wrote. And we're not so sure how soon that was written because Robert... Uh, it was announced fairly early on that he was suffering from leukemia. Uh, they had a, his family and one of his friends in New York City put together a GoFundMe page. Uh, so maybe he wrote that song called One Day Left um, when he found out. And if so, it's going to be a tearjerker for sure. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll find out what the rest of the album comes out uh, or it looks like and sounds like very shortly. 
Uh, we pop music. Uh, we talk about this with our kids all the time because what I grew up listening to, what they grew up listening to, they have a, a just such a vast well to draw from. Whether it's stuff from the very beginning, uh, as you were saying, the early fifties, sorry, mid fifties of rock and roll, right through pop music, hit music, whatever you want to call it, dance music, rap, what have you. Uh, there, this was an era of revival. Considering music, pop music has the has the longevity that it does, has the depth that it does. Is there another revival era coming back? I mean, you know, we saw the big band era a while ago too, with Buble and even Colin James having success with the little big band. Where do you go from here? Yeah, you you know what's amazing? I saw a rockabilly band around nine uh, two thousand and eighteen, and and I thought this is music from seventy years ago. And it still sounds as fresh and new as when I first heard it from the Stray Cats, who was replicating a replication of something from 50 years ago back then. So it's kind of like the blues. You never really run out of topics. There's always going to be somebody's heartbreaking. You're always going to see a marriage that it was never somebody's first choice. So there goes a a very heavy (laughs) blues song. Um, So as long as there's, there's kind of that that wealth of accessibility they'll always have rockabilly and blues based albums um whether it's an elvis tr- uh, uh the elvis presley tribute um that that robert and chris did called it now or never um he did a uh, he did a blues based album called all for the love of rock and roll back in the early 1990s so i don't know what the next revival will be it, i thought it would be 1980s pop music because you certainly heard that in the new singles of the yeah. weekend and harry styles um which completely rips off aha's take on me um but with good uh-huh. notice so I don't know, you know, I, 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 is, is the next revival going to be somebody that's replicating, you know, Nirvana and Soundgarden, uh, you know, I, I, I hope not, because that was fine. <laughs> but, you know, it's just a little bit depressing. And of course, we're all just getting older. So we're all going to say that's not the real stuff anyway. But I think when people were talking about Robert Gordon, they, I think they were talking about the real stuff, though. You know what? Uh, the next Netflix show will determine what that trend is, probably, as whatever they pick for a soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, Eric Elber yeah. with his publicist and music commentary. Always fun. Uh, thanks for the time, Eric. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. And have a great time, whoever's going to go uh, Friday and this weekend for the yeah. Teenage Head stuff. That sounds going to be cool. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Nelson Wiseman, professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto. There's lots to talk about when regarding with politics, uh, especially with a municipal election coming up on uh, October 24th. Uh, and the Emergencies Act inquiring continue. Nelson Wiseman from the U of T with us now. Nelson, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. I'm well, Scott. Thank you. So uh, here we are uh, a couple of days into uh, the Emergencies Act inquiry. Uh, being a poli-sci professor, I can't ask you what your, I can't help but uh, not ask you what your thoughts are uh, with what we've seen so far. And uh, my goodness, especially with the mayor yesterday and the blame game going, it's like watching musical chairs almost. Well, I mean, I thought the first two days, especially yesterday, were, had more drama. I haven't heard everything today. Um I'm not, I wouldn't use the analogy of musical chairs. What both uh, Jim Watson and Trudeau have in common is they're both liberals. Yeah. Watson was a liberal MPP. So you could look at one angle as well, neither uh, 
begins by having sympathy for Ford or the Conservative Party. But on the other hand, there is a legitimate question here. The occupation took place in Ontario. How come Ontario is not did not ask to intervene in this inquiry? Quebec has asked, and it's going to intervene. So is Alberta. So has Saskatchewan. And they've outlined positions. Why is Ontario silent? After all, it happened in Ontario under the nose of Ontario uh, police forces. Uh, the response from the uh, from the premier on that is that the OPP is involved. The OPP is testifying, and um, yeah, that was his response. What are your thoughts to that? Uh, OPP no, also no, the, said, "Sorry, go ahead." I would say no, no. The I, I saw in the Globe and Mail what the OPP said on the um, opening day. On one hand, they said, "You know, um, under the current laws." Uh, we could have done things the, the uh, how should I put it they said you didn't need the emergencies act to do what was done but then they also said but the act was useful so they didn't spell out what were the uses of the act that mm-hmm. current law couldn't do but the bigger question is why were you sitting on your ass for almost a month what did you do after the first weekend when, you know, the Ottawa police thought it would only last the weekend between then and later on. And how come your premier couldn't come to a meeting that was called about it? Because he said, no, it's a waste of time sitting at the table just talking. Yes, it can be a waste of time, but is that what his views were about the occupation? So, uh, this this conversation. Uh, every, sorry, go ahead. Every police force is going to try, everybody at the inquiry is going to try to cover their ass. Yeah. It's quite clear that um, the police forces, uh, as you pointed out, there wasn't uh, nobody communicated from the intelligence unit. I don't recall the Trudeau quote you gave. It wasn't the responsibility of the federal government to step in initially, although I thought after five, six days, I thought they should have stepped in. I thought we should have had the Emergencies Act five, six days after. It was quite clear that they weren't going to leave the occupiers, and this was uh, making life impossible, miserable for the residents of downtown Ottawa. Uh, the conversation between the mayor and Justin Trudeau happened on February eighth, which was ten days after the trucks arrived in uh, in, in Ottawa. Is yes. it at this point just desperation? Because again, uh, as we're hearing today from. Uh, the former head of the police services board, that the mayor, or sorry, that the uh, police chief thought that there was nothing to get excited about and that they would all leave, although there was intelligence from the Hotel Association and from the OPP saying that they were planning to stay for, uh, for an extended period of time. Uh, and obviously there was never a plan in place if they didn't leave and obviously that's what would happen by the time these accusations by the time february 8th rolls around and the conversation that we heard of between the mayor and uh of ottawa and the prime minister it's it's pretty much out of control by this point um, yeah it was, it was out of control after five six days it was just clear i i mean yes there's i believe there should have been action earlier there's no doubt about it 
many of the politicians, and I'm playing devil's advocate here for, uh, for the premier, if many uh, politicians are saying, well, I can't do anything, I can't do anything, I can't do anything, and yet now they're all saying Doug Ford should have done something. Hold it, hold it. Who said, I didn't see, I didn't hear Doug Ford saying I can't do anything. I didn't hear any politicians saying, I, well, hold it. I didn't see any politicians. Nobody's taking responsibility for it. Is the point that I'm making? Everybody's like the you know same well, with the with the mayor you're, yesterday. You're, well, you're right. You're right. Look, we have different levels of government. So, at, at the end of the day, the federal government stepped in with the Emergencies Act. Ford had stepped in earlier, and I complimented for him for introducing the Ontario Emergency Act. I'm not sure what the powers are there. I, I think it did contribute to clearing up the. Uh, the blockade at the uh, Ambassador Bridge. And I also think there was another government involved, and that was the Americans who put great pressure, not on Ford, because they don't talk to Ford, on the federal government, because $300 million of trade every day was being blockaded. So that was a a, a big economic crisis. Um, You know, we've got divided government, and we have divided police services, the Ottawa police failed uh, because they obviously didn't follow up on the intelligence. The OPP failed because they didn't intervene. I'm sure the Ottawa police asked. That's the impression I got from Watson. And then, uh, you know, there's criticism that the federal government, but what uh, it didn't do anything. What could the federal? What police does the federal government has? The RCMP. And the criticism, if it was a criticism by Watson, is the RCMP was preoccupied by protecting the Prime Minister's residence uh, at Rideau Hall, uh, you know, federal federal places. Well, you know, there, sure, there should have been action earlier. And it's, it, it's uh, just as we've got a federal system uh, and municipal governments, federal, provincial, municipal, we also have federal, provincial, and police forces, they didn't have their act together. At the end of the day, there was a police failure, and the politicians should have intervened earlier. And I include Ford and Trudeau. I'm less critical of Watson, because Watson doesn't have the power. How many police are there in Ottawa? And he can't really direct them anyways. The others could also say we can't direct our police, but they could introduce emergency uh, acts, which they did. Do you think? Do you think Nelson? Late. Do you think Nelson will find out how it was allowed to get to this extent, or do we already know that because there wasn't a plan? Because now it's sort of like uh, the horse is out of the barn. Uh, who let the horse out? How did it get yeah. to this point? Who left the door open? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the the question is, why didn't it go on longer? Because the Emergencies Act was imposed, I believe, even though it's still not clear to me what it is that the police couldn't have done earlier. The only thing I can think of is that there were news reports that the tow truck drivers in Ottawa were afraid that they they wouldn't tow these trucks even if the police uh, uh, ordered it because they were afraid of um, repercussions to them, that in the future they'd be blackballed or, or perhaps, you know, people would attack them. Uh, I think the Emergencies Act, you know, compelled that. There may have been other things which aren't clear to me. Was the Emergencies Act necessary so that uh, 
Ottawa police could have kept big rigs from entering the city, which maybe they couldn't have done before the Emergencies Act? I don't know. Was the Emergencies Act necessary to have police forces come in from other provinces, which we eventually had and were necessary? Uh, I don't know. Nelson, I'm going to have to cut you off there. We're simply out of time, Nelson. I thought what the police did at the end was brilliant. They Mm. pulled it off, but that should have happened much earlier. Nelson Wiseman with us, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto. As always, Nelson, thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. I want to bring in Lou Molinaro, instructor with the Harris Institute of Music, also Durham College, and longtime music promoter, former owner of This Ain't Hollywood. A couple of reasons, uh, the passing of Robert Gordon, who uh, played at Lou's Place. Uh, there's another great name for a a bar Lou's place uh played at his place this in hollywood several times and uh obviously lou is going to be part of uh an event uh we're doing coming up this friday which is i'm pretty excited about this is at the art gallery of hamilton it comes up friday night uh at seven o'clock celebrating the legacy of teenage head with a screening of the documentary picture my face uh doug aerosmith the director will be there and members of the band as well in order to have a q and a and lou's going to be a part of that as well lou thanks for taking the time I hope you're doing well today. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show. So, first of all, Lou, let's talk about Robert Gordon. Obviously, he played at this in Hollywood several times, but you also had a a, a special relationship with Robert. Robert Gordon, uh, I, I was trying to think of this. I think he played at this in Hollywood easily about a dozen times. Hmm. And every time Robert played, um, he made me work for you know, for what I do. And that's just because he was a consummate professional. He was like an old school professional where, um, you know, he, he realized that he's the attention. He's the reason why people came out to see him perform the big billion dollar voice. And, um, you know, his, his ethics about show business are not the same things that uh, we're used to nowadays. Uh, he's from the old school of show business. And uh, that really made me, you know, just, be focused uh, a lot more on everything that I did because of uh, the way Robert uh, worked. Your thoughts on his passing? Well, uh, I know this past year has been very, very difficult for him health-wise. We were supposed to do a show with him in uh, August, and unfortunately Chris Petting, his guitar player, got ill, and then Robert got ill shortly thereafter. So um, Chris uh, was healing, Robert wasn't, and uh, September and uh you know, the early part of October uh, really took a toll on Robert's life. And I understand you got to see him. I spoke to him on, uh, on I, I didn't get to see him. I spoke to him uh, via telephone uh, at his hospital uh, where he was at uh, two weeks ago because uh, he didn't want to be there and he was still feisty. One thing about Robert is, is that he still had that feist and fight mm-hmm. in him. So um, I asked uh, someone close to Robert if I could uh, call the hospital and chat with him for a few minutes. And it kind of broke my heart because uh, he still had that beautiful voice, but he sounded very old and very ill. Mm-hmm. Uh, the passing of uh, Robert Gordon, age 75. All right, Lou, coming up this Friday night, Art Gallery of Hamilton, uh, The Legacy of Teenage Head, a screening of Picture My Face, the documentary. Uh, Doug Aerosmith going to be there, members of the band for a Q&A. I get to host. You're part of that. This is a very special night, isn't it? 
It's uh, it's a night that belongs to Hamilton. Uh, I believe this is the very first time that the movie has actually been screened, that will screen, um, aside from, you know, being on television. And so uh, it, it's just right that it uh, happens in Hamilton. But uh, a lot of people in Hamilton have fond memories of Teenage Head and their own stories. So, uh, mm. you know, it's something that all of us share, and the, and the movie does that for us. All right, Lou Molinero with us, instructor at the Harris Institute for Music in Durham College, longtime Hamilton music promoter, former owner of This Ain't Hollywood, talking about the passing of Robert Gordon and, of course, uh, coming up this Friday at the Art Gallery of Hamilton, uh, The Legacy of Teenage Head, a screening of Picture My Face, a Q&A with the band. Lou's going to be there. Uh, also, director Doug Aerosmith. Lou, thanks for the time. Be well. We'll see you soon. Yeah, let's make sure we don't wear the same thing on Friday night. It seems we have been talking about this uh, far too often. A RCMP officer killed in the line of duty, Burnaby, British Columbia. We heard about this yesterday. Constable Shailen Yang, a member of the local deta- uh, detachment's mental health and homeless outreach team, uh, lost her life uh, yesterday. And we are now finding out that, uh, in fact, someone has been charged. Let's bring in Janet Brown, reporter with Global News, British Columbia and here now. Janet, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you for having me on your show today. Yeah, it was just a terrible, terrible, tragic day, uh, not only for the city of Burnaby, which is just outside of Vancouver, but the entire province, if not the entire country, losing a member of our police force, the RCMP, just just terrible all around. And the circumstances are just just tragic as well. Let me walk you through some of it yesterday. 31-year-old constable, as you say, Shailene Yang, fatally stabbed in a park on Tuesday morning. Uh, She was an RCMP officer for only just under three years with the Burnaby RCMP. She was a wife, a daughter, and a sister. She had gone to the park. She was assisting a City of Burnaby staff member just after 11 in the morning. They were responding together to a homeless tent, one tent in the park. There was an altercation. She was stabbed and the suspect was shot. Constable Yang rushed to hospital where she died and the suspect was also taken to hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Exactly, Scott, what happened is, of course, still under investigation today. The park is still taped off and the tent is still in the park. However, BC's Independent Investigations Office says Constable Yang was able to shoot the suspect. But they have not said or they can't say if she fired before or after she was stabbed. The IIO has found video surveillance of the incident, so that's good news. And they say that will help speed up their investigation. Burnaby Mayor Mike Hurley says going forward, changes will indeed have to be considered when city staff and RCMP officers are dispatched to certain areas of the city where there are tents. Here's more of what he has to say. Well, of course, we have to relook at, at everything we do and uh, how we're approaching homeless to sh- ensure we're keeping police and our staff safe uh, because, you know, more and more in our wooded areas, we're seeing, you know, some tents being set up and we try to move them along, try to find them uh, places to stay. But uh, often you're just moving at 500 yards on the roads or, or and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really becoming a big job to stay on top of this. And, and really, uh, there needs to be a real issue. Or there needs to be real solutions found 
to what's the root cause of all that's going on, rather than trying to plug the dikes like like we have been doing. I think over the last number of years, and I think, you know, we, we really need to tackle the homeless issue, uh, the mental health issues, and the drug-related issues, I believe, with the same seriousness we did uh, for the pandemic, and uh, really need to get on this and ensure that we're finding real solutions and not just temporary solutions. But certainly, uh, you know, we'll be reviewing how we're handling homeless situations and how we're handling when a tent is set up in a park, uh, how that's going to be handled in the future. But it's too early for me to speculate on what that might be at this time. And, you know, let me ask you, uh, Janet, you know, it seems that, um, you know, what was said there, many have been saying that in the past and that this outreach program was one of those programs to help this. Many were worried that the outreach person would be hurt, not the not the constable, but the opposite has happened here. Absolutely. And we know right across our country, in the U.S. as well, there are many tent encampments. Uh, in this case, there was only one tent, so it really wasn't an encampment, but it was somebody who was uh, camping out in a city park. And and quite often, uh, officers have to approach these tents. First and foremost, often, it's to check on these people to make sure they're doing okay, that, you know, they have they have what they need uh, to offer sometimes assistance or let them know what is available in terms of housing in the community. Um, you know, and I, I'm sure it's well known back in Hamilton, too, there is a big tent encampment in downtown Vancouver on the city's east side. And Vancouver police officers are quite often finding uh, weapons and replica weapons in those tents and quite often is a very dangerous situation for first responders. And in this case, uh, a city of Burnaby worker also went with the constable. Uh, as you said, just off the top, Scott, of this segment, uh, the BC Prosecution Service, uh, just in the last hour, in fact, uh, says that first degree murder charges have now been approved against Jong Wan Ham. And the accused uh, has made his first court appearance. He's been remanded in custody, so he will stay behind bars until his next court appearance in early November, on the 2nd of November. Uh, there was also, uh, last night, there was a big procession of roughly six minutes of police cars, other emergency vehicles, rolling past the hospital where Constable Yang was taken. And today, people are dropping off flowers in the park where the stabbing took place. And also flowers are piling up at the Burnaby RCMP detachment. And even federal leaders expressing their condolences today in the House of Commons. The Prime Minister saying his heart goes out to the family of the officer and communities across the country who are grieving murdered police officers. And just of note, Scott, Constable Yang is the fifth police officer to be the victim of homicide in Canada in as many weeks. Yeah. That is a sobering thought. Is it ever? Janet Brown with us, uh, Global News, British Columbia. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this uh, fallen officer, Burnaby, B.C., and the suspect has been charged. Janet, thank you for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We certainly know about inflation. Oh, my goodness, it's dropped a little bit. I'm going to Disneyland. 
Um, it's still, it's it's at 6.9%, which uh, is pretty high compared to where it was just a little while ago. Uh, Loblaw's no-name uh, prices uh, have been frozen. And we heard this announcement earlier on uh, this week that uh, uh, Loblaw is going to freeze the no-name price uh, prices right through until January 31st. Then Metro comes out and said, well, we do that anyway. To which some have said, well, isn't that price-fixing? Uh, so what this is all, uh, what does this all mean? And are we really getting a savings? Uh, and will others jump on board? Let's bring in Mike Von Masso, uh, OAC chair in food system leadership and an associate professor of food agricultural and resource economics at the University of Guelph and is with us now. Mike, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So Loblaw's got lots of uh, publicity the other day for announcing their price freeze on no-name uh, uh, items right through till January 31st. Is this about empathy for those that are struggling, or is this just good, P- uh, good PR? Well, can we, can we say it's a little bit of both, uh, Sure, Scott? I, I think, you know, I'm never one to look a gift horse in the mouth. And uh, as you said, inflation numbers were down a little bit today, but not food inflation numbers. They were actually up again a little bit. So... We're still getting pressure at, uh, at the grocery store, so every little bit helps. I might not have been quite as uh, braggadocious, if you will, about about doing it and you know putting ads on TV and things like that looks a little bit self-serving, but in the end, it will save some people. It, it won't re- give us relief, but it will reduce pressure going forward. Uh, nothing new here. Why now? Well, it, it, <laughs> a cynic might say uh, now because uh, uh, they're about to get called in front of a, 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 a parliamentary committee. Uh, I might say might be a little bit of that, but it might also be uh, taking some time to figure it out, getting some predictability. When you lock in prices, uh, which I'm guessing they did with their suppliers, it, it to, to mitigate the risk, uh, maybe it took some time to get that pulled together. So, uh, and this is one of the biggest shopping seasons uh, of the uh, of the year. So maybe the timing was right. So maybe a bit of cynicism, and maybe uh, took some time to get things sorted out. Uh, Metro came out and said afterwards, because everybody was asking, "Oh, the others going to follow suit?" Metro said that the that it's just known that the grocery chains uh, hold these prices on these no name no name items during this time of year. Anyway, is that accurate? And what does that say? Because some have suggested well, that's collusion. Well, uh, so a couple of things. I I can't say specifically whether that's happened in the past. I don't. You know, it could be a little bit. Metro trying to uh, reduce the impact of what uh, of what Loblaw said, or it, it could be true. I mean, from from my perspective, the only it, you know what what they're saying is none of us are going to raise prices here. Uh, if they're colluding for the good of consumers, rather than saying you know in the past we heard about bread <laughs> price fixing where 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 they actually inflated the price of uh, of bread. So unless there was sort of a, a plan to ahead of this freeze raise prices. Um, to to me, I, I don't understand why they would collude to keep prices lower. Uh, that's not really anti-competitive behavior. Uh, many are saying, including NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, that there's lots of gouging going on. That these grocery companies are making vast amounts of money during the pandemic, and it's it's greedflation. Are are these large grocery company companies taking advantage of the times? Are they gouging? Uh, 
I don't think they are. I, you know, I think it's easy to point fingers at, at the grocery store uh, because that's where we're seeing the big bill. Uh, but there are lots of factors that are increasing that are that are leading to food price inflation. And, and you know, other people have looked at margins and profitability and said there's just no evidence that they are. Might there be? Maybe a little bit, but but it's not obvious, and it's and and there's no evidence. And I think, frankly, what we're looking for is is an easy answer, a silver bullet to this food price inflation. And it's just caused by so many different things that there is no silver bullet. Uh, on that note, uh, Mike, why are the prices so high? I mean, obviously, we've seen everything go up as a result of the pandemic, uh, uh, supply chain, energy costs. Is it the same for food? Well, it is the same for food, and and you know we, it, with a couple of additional <laughs> factors, frankly. So energy costs that's that's putting it on trucks, uh, and and transporting it is getting more expensive. Supply chain, we've got a lot of the bumps out of the supply chain, but we're still short twenty thousand trucks in North uh, truckers in North America, so it's hard to get that capacity. We've seen extreme weather events which have affected uh, crop yields. The war in the Ukraine uh, has affected wheat and vegetable oil trade, both of which we've seen significant price rises in. So there are all of these different, the Canadian dollar has gone down, so exports get more expensive. All of those factors are sort of conspiring to give us kind of a perfect storm uh, of impacts uh, that, that, are, that are causing prices to rise across the board. Should we be surprised that uh, although inflation is down uh, very, very slightly today, uh, it's still going up in food? How do we draw that balance? How do we draw that parallel? Well, I think for uh, there's a couple of things. You know, inflation is down, which is across the entire market. So that means that some prices are coming down. We've gotten a bit of relief which may be temporary at the gas pumps, that's made a difference. So there are other things that have gotten cheaper, uh, but the factors that are that are affecting food prices are independent of those that are affecting some of the other prices. There's not just sort of a, a lever that they pull that makes inflation go up or down, and those fundamental factors on food prices have not been, have not been solved yet or have not have not turned back yet. So, uh, it, you know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it looks like food inflation may last a little bit longer. So prices may continue to go up uh, for a while yet. My next question, Mike, was a prediction for the winter. So you think we're going to continue through this? What will the winter months be like? Well, I, th- I, I think that uh, there's no evidence that the war in Ukraine is 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 going to be over anytime soon. So that leads to that that means that there's going to continue to be the pressure. Now it might get lowered a little bit because we've had really good wheat yields and canola yields in Western Canada this year. So we might make up part of the gap. One of the things that concerns me is how dry it is in the southwest of the U.S. You know, at this time of year, we start getting out of Canadian produce, and we usually see prices go up anyway uh, relative to other parts of the year. And 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 if if it's as dry as it sounds in California and Arizona, if water levels are as low as they sound, I think I, I think uh, prices for produce uh, will be high over the winter, and the Canadian dollar will make that worse. So I think there's still some 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 factors that that could cause us some grief going forward. 
Mike Von Massow with us, OAC Chair in Food System Leadership and an Associate Professor in Food Agriculture and Re- uh, Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. Mike, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Yeah, thanks. You too, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It was just a a little while ago we were chatting about uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia uh, taking back four regions, annexing four regions of Ukraine uh, that they felt um, that were theirs and uh, that, that nobody seemed to mind them doing this, yet it, it appears that Ukraine has taken back a good portion of this to the point where martial law has now been declared by Russia in those annexed regions. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Arne Kislenko is with us. Margaret McMillan, Trinity One International Relations Program, Trinity College, University of Toronto, and Department of History at Toronto Metropolitan University. And Arne is with us now. Arne, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. So obviously these regions were annexed uh, a while ago. Uh, Putin was saying that, um, you know, there's nothing to this, uh, that many were agreeing with all of this as far as citizenry within those regions. Yet now we're, uh, he has declared martial, or sorry, um, uh, has has declared that, uh, that um, what's the word I'm looking for? Martial law has been declared martial in law, those areas. Yeah. Sorry, martial yeah. law has been declared in those areas. Uh, obviously, uh, with Ukraine going in and trying to reclaim a lot of these, it's not as stable as he would like it to be. That's absolutely right. So this is another desperate act uh, in many ways, um, particularly because the the proclamation that he made is really unspecified. It it remains sort of an open-ended proposition what exactly martial law means. Uh, And even more frighteningly is that in the statement, he made it clear that, you know, there's a potential it could be extended to other parts of Russia. So this is obviously a guy that that seems to be increasingly aware that his plan has failed dismally um, and is now, you know, uh, what's the good phrase, digging in. This is not a guy interested in any kind of negotiations or peace. He's he may be under the the delusion uh, that the motherland, meaning territorial of Russia, might also be under threat. That's a dangerous uh, a gambit to say the least. Uh, but it really isn't specified what this martial law means, except pretty much the obvious that he uh, is worried about either a Ukrainian military advance uh, or a lot of insurrection from from those four territories. Um, what about the citizenry within those annexed regions? How are they coping? Whose side are they on? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we know that, you know, from, from history, amongst other things, that this is a population that has always identified first and foremost as Russian. That's the whole sort of back, uh, backstory to this, uh, this tragic event. Um, but it doesn't necessarily follow that all of them anticipated a war or wanted separation and annexation. That's a, that's a bit of a mental leap. We know that, as a matter of fact, some people have fled the whole area altogether and gone into Ukraine because, um, they, they didn't want war, they didn't expect it, and they don't really identify with being Russian enough to fight and die for the cause. Uh, what I think is pretty clear is that these areas are now, yes, still in effect under the, the, the thumb of Putin and his military and the, the cronies that serve him there. Um, but they really are losing their grip. And this goes back to the same old story you and I have talked about before. This plan has gone, you know, has gone uh, to heck right from the get-go. It has been a horrible military plan, poorly led, poorly orchestrated. 
Um, I, I think the increasing use of kamikaze drones shows that pretty clearly. That's a desperate act uh, as much as anything else. So I think he is legitimately worried about the potential for these uh, four territories to, to either break away or to, to be reclaimed by Ukraine. Um, and, and again, the most sinister part of this whole uh, episode was the fact that he he left pretty open-ended language as to what form that would take and that it could also be extended elsewhere. How can he, Putin, keep selling this to the Russian citizenry that this is just an operation, it's not a war, uh, it's just a maneuver? I mean, yeah. obviously, it's eight months into this. How can he keep selling it as just you know something we're doing? Well, that's the magic question, right? Uh, even for Westerners who, you know, who would never tolerate this because of our democratic societies, uh, even a lot of Russians, including many that I know, are, are scratching their heads and saying, come on, like, obviously, even in a, in a land, you know, full of propaganda and authoritarianism, you must be able to see by now that, that it is a war and that we're losing that war. Um, so there's a faint hope among some that, that you know, the, the things that we saw in the last few weeks, right, the exodus of tens of thousands when the uh, march, or sorry, when the uh, mobilization was called upon, that, you know, that was a sort of hopeful uh, a sign that, that maybe a Russian populace was becoming impatient. I think the economic pinch of, of both war and, uh, and all the sanctions will, will have effect too. But that's the magic question. We don't know how far uh, people are are willing to tolerate an extended war. What I can say, I think, with a fair amount of certainty is that there's no evidence that Putin has any intention of backing down. So that means in, in the buckle-down sort of theory that Russians will now have to face a very long war. And so the propensity for them to, to be aggravated by this goes up. And like everybody else here in the West, I think, or at least uh, that I know, you know, you're hoping that eventually they will kick in and say enough is enough. Uh, a while ago, a few weeks ago, we were talking about nukes and, and the threat of nuclear warfare and such. And today, it seems we're talking about drones. What yeah. happened to nukes? Is, is, is this the new threat? Is, what happened to the nuclear warfare threat? No, nu- nuclear threat is still there. And, and I'm, I'm not a doomsdayer um, by any stretch, but we have to be really sober and realistic about this, particularly because we didn't see the invasion coming. We being, you know, anybody who... who, who watches this stuff, follows this stuff. It's a very real threat. And and by that, I mean, this is a guy who, in my viewpoint, is mentally unstable. I don't know how else to put it to you. Um, he's certainly delusional on some level, but I'll, I'll go a little bit further and say I, I think he, he has, you know, uh, lost a lot of his faculties. And now faced with very clearly a, a war that he has lost. Even the Russian media is admitting you know, some of its casualties, people are disappearing in his own court. So so in that light, you know, we can't rule out the possibility that he's uh, fully gone and will use at least a, tactic, uh, uh, a tactical weapon on Ukraine. Obviously, me and everybody else on the planet hopes that's not the case. Where the drones come in is that it, it, it you could see it, as some people do, as a sort of more surgical and economical uh, attack plan by the Russians. These are relatively cheap. By that, I mean about $20,000 a pop. Um, and, of course, they're unmanned, so they can do maximum damage. They're hard to, to detect on radar. They come in clusters. They're terrifying. They're, they're not dissimilar from V-1 and V-2 rockets in the, first, uh, in the Second World War that the Nazis used. Um, but I prefer to see them as a kind of desperate act because, first of all, they're Iranian in, in origin, which means that the Russians are buying them, not necessarily building them. Um, and it also kind of reflects the fact that now he's into a, a much more than he ever was before into a terror campaign. That, that means that he's going to abandon some of his initial goals, i.e. 
destroying Ukraine, taking over Kiev in particular, and is now you know just yeah. lashing out in the most horrific of fashion. Uh, so I don't think it's a it's separate from the the larger threat of uh, of uh, of uh, you know of a nuclear weapon, um, but it is another tactic in his arsenal. Uh, and certainly he, even a man of his delusion, doesn't want to see more and more body bags and more of a failed military campaign. So this is just another way to unleash hell on, on innocent people. Dr. Arne Kislenko with us, uh, Trinity College, University of Toronto, Department of History, Toronto Metropolitan University. Always fascinating, Arne. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me. You too, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Municipal election, October Monday, 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 October 24th. You have to get out and exercise your right to vote. Let's bring in mayoral candidate Andrea Horbath. She is with us now. Andrea, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am very well. Thank you, Scott. And you? So far, so good. Going to ask you about two points that came out from your competitors today. Uh, Keenan Loomis just releasing a news uh, release that said that he's only going to do two terms if he's elected as mayor. Bob Bertina came out and said uh, police are in uh, need and they need more resources, more police officers. Do you want to give us your take <laughs> on both those? Let's start with two terms. Would you do two terms, Andrea? Well, I would be happy to get one term, Scott. Mm-hmm. I am certainly not going to presuppose where the voters are going to cast their ballots on uh, on Monday. Uh, I can tell you that I'm ready and raring to go to serve for the first term, and then we'll see where the city is and what the people of the city want. So I'm not even pre- uh, presupposing a second term. Uh, you have to be respectful of, uh, of uh, the electorate. On the other issue, you know, we keep asking police to do more and more different things, and... Uh, uh, they they get involved in policing because they want to be police officers, but they've been uh, relied upon to fill all kinds of other uh, roles, as you know. Uh, they're doing some really um, some really good work, but they are are stretched. And I know they're working with community to try to help uh, move some of those programs uh, into the more into the community realm. Uh, and I think that we have to wait until all of that is is dealt with before we start talking about any kind of change to any kind of uh, policing resources. I, I just think that we need to be really thoughtful about, you know, who's picking up the freight right now and, and making sure that uh, particularly the most vulnerable are getting the supports that they need. And until that happens, uh, you know, as, uh, as uh, has been said, when people call 911 because there's a crisis, uh, the police respond, and that's their job. And we have to prevent people from going into crisis in the first place uh, to, uh, you know, to give the, the police an opportunity to um you know, to maybe look at other other responsibilities as opposed to those. Uh, a new Main Street poll says that you are out in front of this race uh, at this point, Andrea, uh, although Keenan is making some ground. What are your thoughts? How does it feel that it's going? Is this a tight race? Uh, what's the feeling on the campaign trail for you? Uh, well, of course, the most important poll, as you know, happens on Monday, on Election Day. Uh, but, uh, but I feel really positive out there. And what's exciting for me is that uh, the people of Hamilton seem to be very engaged in this election. I think folks know that absolutely we have some challenges as a city, but I think people also feel that we have a lot of opportunity as well. And although there's going to be some new faces around the council table, certainly what people are telling me is that's even more the reason uh, why we need an experienced uh, leader at the the top, uh, because they... uh, the new faces uh, are, are, you know, a breath of fresh air, uh, but but we need somebody who knows uh, the leadership role at the municipal level and that has that capacity and that demonstrated experience. And uh, and and so for me, that feels good. 
Uh, people are confident in my capacity, my ability, and know that uh, if I were to become the mayor of Hamilton, uh, all of the partisan stuff stays, uh, you know, outside of City Hall. City Hall is a place where all of us get together and get to work in the best interest of Hamilton and Hamiltonians. And, uh, and that's my commitment to the people of this city. It's all uh, about the city of Hamilton. Email from a listener, Andrea, it says multiple ambly, uh, ambliant, <laughs> ambulance, <laughs> code zeros every day. Uh, they say that this is tied to city decisions, not provincial. Will Andrea commit to hiring more paramedics so the city does not have zero ambulances available on a daily basis? Your thoughts? Well, I think it's terrifying for people who call 911 and aren't able to get an ambulance when they need one, that we're using ambulance services or or asking for backup from communities at, at great distance. And that's really, really troubling. And for paramedics, it's got to be so frustrating, stuck in a, you know, in an emergency ward, waiting to offload patients and not able to, uh, you know, not able to get back out on the calls that they know that people are uh, are um, needing. And so, so it, it's not one or the other. The real answer is, uh, the city has been already doing some of that, augmenting with more staff and with more vehicles. Uh, but the problem is this is being downloaded by uh, the government, uh, by the provincial government, because the hospitals are jammed up. Now, they're trying to make some changes, uh, which have been controversial. Uh, but the bottom line is we, we need to be investing in our health care system. Uh, we need to be investing in our hospitals. We need to be investing in home care, community care, long-term care. Uh, and if the provincial government is, um, you know, is reluctant to, to do that kind of investment, then certainly we have to look after Hamiltonians. Uh, we have to put the pressure on, certainly, but we do also have to look after Hamiltonians. And so I think this issue is going to continue to come up at the council table, uh, and we have to be ready to, uh, you know, to make decisions that, that take care of our people. Uh, tomorrow, making an announcement on cycling and pedestrian safety. Is there anything you can uh, tell us about that at this point? Uh, really just that it's uh, it's something I hear a lot, uh, pedestrian uh, safety, cycling safety, road safety for kids, for uh, for, for seniors, uh, for, you know, for local neighborhood communities. It's uh, something that comes up a lot. So I have a, I have something to say about that uh, with somebody that's got some expertise and, and looking forward to having that, uh, uh, that announcement tomorrow. Andrea Horvath, mayoral candidate, talking to us. Don't forget, uh, coming up Monday, the 24th of October, Municipal Election Day. Andrea, as always, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. My pleasure as always, Scott. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, to talk about all of this and the Emergency Act inquiry going on, Phil Gursky with us, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Nash, uh, University of Ottawa's National Security Program, former CSIS analyst, and with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Well, well, Scott. It's been a while. How are you, sir? So far, so good. Your thoughts on what you're seeing so far? You know, by the time of this, the end of this mess at three weeks, I mean, it's probably easy to debate we needed something to move it forward. Will we find out, and are we finding out, uh, how we even got to this place? Because it certainly looks like the police thought they were all going to leave, uh, but didn't have a plan B in place if they stayed. Is that accurate? Yeah, you know what? I, I think it was a very fluid situation when it was unfolding, Scott, at the time. I think it was something that maybe local uh, officials in Ottawa and local police didn't quite uh, understand how significant and how large it was. This is a moving target. We're getting more and more information all the time. We are finding more about what my organ former organization, CSIS, told the government in terms of the intelligence they were receiving. So that's a good thing. I would be a little bit um, surprised if all the intelligence is disclosed because it may come from sensitive sources. So at the end of this entire inquiry, Scott, which I believe is going to last about, is it six weeks, I believe, or whatever the time yeah. frame is, 
we may still have more questions than answers. And I think the biggest question that Canadians are trying to have answered for them is, was there enough information at the time in February of, of this year to justify the invocation of a draconian act which suspended civil liberties? I'm not sure we'll get an answer to that. Uh, lots of chatter about foreign actors, foreign money. How, what is the extent of that? Well, CISA said quite categorically that there was, and I quote, little, little to no evidence of influence by foreign actors. And if memory serves me correct, that was one of the accusations that was leveled by members of the Trudeau government, that they had to take more serious action because this was being funded by, from abroad, i.e. United States. Uh, of course, this, is, this happens in the aftermath of the attack on the Capitol in January of 2021. And I think there were a lot of people who were worried, are we going to see a repeat performance of that, being that it was in part of Parliament Hill? And so they certainly wanted to in their minds, to preclude the possibility of something violent has happened in Washington. But, I mean, so far, we're not seeing a lot of solid information that supports the decision to take that 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 move in that there is no violence that was actually perpetrated, unlike what happened in the Capitol. Who is responsible? Because what we're uh, responsible for cleaning up this mess, for, for eventually uh, providing law here, because what we're hearing right now is, no, it's that person's that person. That, and now we're hearing from a phone call uh, between the mayor and, and the prime minister, which was 10 days uh, after this all started, saying that Doug Ford's hiding. Um, whose responsibility was this? It seems to me, and I'm not an expert in law enforcement, but it seems to me that this is primarily it's the Ottawa Police Services, which is the jurisdiction of force in Ottawa. These demonstrations and, you know, park trucks and blowing horns and other types of activities were taking place on Ottawa streets. That's their turf. They're the ones that should be doing it. They clearly felt they didn't have the, the manpower, the resources necessary to handle it. And that's why they reached out to other forces to lend some assistance. But at the end of the day, uh, it's an Ottawa problem because it's happening on the streets of Ottawa. You do know that, you know, once you cross that kind of Wellington Street barrier onto Parliament Hill, that's a different jurisdiction. That's the mm-hmm. RCMP and parliamentary police that can get, get involved in that. But it seems to me that if you're going to point fingers, and I'm not pointing fingers, just for just for the record, that it's the Ottawa police that has to make the decisions on how to handle what is a se- essentially uh, a a demonstration that went on far too long in the downtown in the streets of downtown Ottawa. We heard many officials from Ottawa say, you know, this happens every weekend. This happens all the time. There's constantly people protesting on Parliament Hill. And, uh, you know, being the capital city, you can completely understand that. What I can't understand is they don't have some sort of plan if this goes terribly wrong. Again, they thought in, you know, again, fluid situation. They didn't know they were going to stay or they didn't uh, trust the information that that these truckers were going to stay for any length of time. But the fact that they didn't have a plan in place if they decided to stay just seems completely puzzling to me is there not you know you know a group that sits around and say okay what if this happens what is our plan i I mean it it just it seems that they didn't have a plan b here yeah it's kind of like your team a team b which the cia i think you know puts in place in the aftermath of 9-11 a bit in fairness scott i mean hindsight's obviously 2020 but i don't disagree with you i think you have you have to look at the worst case scenario what happens if they don't go away? And you're right. I mean, demonstrations are a dime a dozen in downtown Ottawa. I've, I've been here for, you know, four decades. I remember the Tamil Tigers, a listed terrorist entity, having a demonstration right in front of Parliament Hill. This is, this is people that are killing people in Sri Lanka. So, yes, it does happen all the time. You would think that the authorities would go through different scenarios. They would go through different exercises so that what do we do when, you know, all the algorithms, all the 
assumptions about how demonstrations are going to unfold doesn't work. And uh, I, I don't have any insight into that. I would think that any law enforcement agency or any, whether it's the feds in the RCMP or provincial or, or, or municipal, would have some kind of a, a, a need to say, okay, let's look at every single possibility. Even if it's the remotest possibility possible, we're going to look at it. At, 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 at it, it could happen. And if it could happen, we should be ready to deal with it. Uh, obviously, the Emergency Act called isn't very often. I mean, I, I guess during the FLQ crisis of, of uh, the 1970s when there were bombs going off and, and, and mailboxes and such, it was called, a version of it was called then. But some have asked, you know, considering other stuff that has happened, whether it's railway uh, blockages, pipeline explosions, or people uh, blocking those or such, how come any of these other situations aren't, uh, declared a uh, you know something that declare that needs the emergency act being declared uh, is that not as uh, I-, I guess uh, about national security as this event in Ottawa how do you draw the line do they use well we did it for this we're not going to do it for that vice versa how do you decide when to call this what what a great question Scott and just to remind your listeners you mentioned the FLQ by the time that it had been declared in nineteen the so called October crisis you know Justin's father Pierre declared the, the War Measures Act, you know, they had set off 160 bombs in Montreal. They'd killed dozens yeah. of, or, or six people were killed. Uh, several hundred were injured. They'd kidnapped a provincial uh, minister whom they killed. That's when you invoke a, a, an act of that nature. You don't do it when there's bouncy castles and rude people in downtown Ottawa. But you raise a good point. And the problem is, is that once you've invoked it once, it's easier to invoke a second time. So we had a a attack on a coastal gas link pipeline a couple months ago in BC. Why wasn't it invoked to, to find the people of that and to try to prevent other people, whether they're environmentalist activists or whatever, who attack those those gas workers? It's a slippery slope in a sense that, you know, you've got to be really, really sure that the situation is so dire that people might die or get se- seriously injured. And there was no indication of that, what happened in Ottawa, that it was going down that pathway. So I can see why people are, are legitimately criticizing the Trudeau government's decision to invoke this piece of legislation. Do you think there'll be trepidation if it's needed in the future? And what if it is needed? I mean, oh, wait a sec, we don't want to go there. Well, you know, I, I think that, you know, as someone who's written a book on the history of terrorism in Canada recently, Scott, The Peaceable Kingdom, these events are extremely rare in our history. And we should, we should, we should congratulate ourselves for that, that we don't have the levels of terrorism that other countries have. I would like to hope that the, the you know, the, the cooler heads will prevail and that you do everything in your power given the, the normal authorities you have, the RCMP, CSIS, et cetera, et cetera, to try to get a handle on these things. And it's only in the worst possible circumstances where the the current uh, abilities and, and legislations and powers you have are insufficient to control the situation. When it gets to the point where people are dying or could die, that's when you evoke a national emergency and nothing short. Will people be shyer next time, depending on the outcome of this inquiry? Um, maybe. I hope so, because... You, you want them to ask that, that you know, that question. Are we sure we need this particular piece of legislation to be used at this particular time? You don't want it used willy-nilly, and you don't want it used in circumstances where it's not warranted. Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and former CSIS analyst. As always, Phil, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, sir. Take care. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. We heard a little Elvis there, which reminds me, COVID Elvis was at my uh, in-law's house over the weekend. First time I got to see COVID Elvis live, and he was amazing. He was spectacular. He did a five-song set for us, and oh my goodness, my mother-in-law was just over the moon. So, uh, COVID Elvis, coming to a party near you. Feel free. All right. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. He's here now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. I'm almost as well as COVID Elvis. There you go. Man, he looks amazing. It was great, uh, but I digress. Uh, so uh, uh, the police, or sorry, uh, we heard clips today in the uh, Emergency Act inquiry from the former head of the former chair of the Police Services Board, Diane Dean, uh, had a call from uh, a clip of her saying that that basically uh, she was telling P- uh, Police Chief Soli about slowly about all her concerns. He kind of blew her off and said it would all be gone in a weekend, and um, and really had no plan if they had uh, decided. Decided to stay, so uh, I think my question to you is, I, or my point is, I, I can't believe that you know even and, and you know it was a fluid situation as Phil Gursky, uh, you know, threats and risk consulting guy said it's a fluid situation. So you can see how mistakes were made. But what I find astounding in all of this is there wasn't a plan B if they don't go home. So obviously there's a plan if they, you know, if they stay, if they go home, which is to do nothing, but there was no plan for them to stay. I can't believe in Ottawa where they protest all the time, they don't have a plan for this sort of thing. Well, uh, that police chief is no longer police chief, correct? Yes. There you go. Um, I mean, Unfortunately, really- the chair of the police board who called him out, is also out as Jim Watson, the mayor, was on a campaign to get rid of her. Who, by the way, is a uh, is a liberal, big time, because he was in Dalton McGinty's cabinet as an MPP, and he was the actual housing minister 12 years ago. So uh, the conversation with him and JT certainly makes a lot more sense now with them shaming the conservative, Doug Ford. Well, there's a whole other discussion if we want to have it. And it's, I mean, boy, is it ever uh, something that has been talked about with our municipal election is when what happens when people who have been um, politicians with a particular party then go to municipal politics. Yep. Um, You know, that question has been raised here. Now, to, I think, to her credit, Donna Skelly, who is not from the same party as uh, Andrea Horvath, uh, but as the senior MPP for this area said, if Andrea Horvath wins, I don't have a personal problem with her. I'm not going to hold anything personal against her. It was politics. Um, however, however, I, I do think in this particular case in Ottawa, um, was it a political thing? It's the the problem you have when you have these crossovers, and it doesn't exclude anyone, and it doesn't mean that. You shouldn't necessarily vote for someone. It's not that, but do we? Your your impression of Jim Watson's actions, I think, are probably fair. I think a lot of people would probably say, would he have said those things about shaming the conservatives if, for example, he had been a conservative cabinet minister? <laughs> yeah, uh, probably not. Maybe you know. Maybe when you get into municipal politics, maybe you don't care who's in office as long as. They're serving you right. Um, but it is. And, and look, this goes back to 
the last provincial election. I wrote something for the paper back in the last provincial election asking an even broader question because there were a number of municipal politicians here in Hamilton who were campaigning or going door to door for provincial, for partisan politicians. Mm-hmm. And my thought was, is this wise? Is it, especially considering um, if the Conservatives won, as they did, almost none of the people who were doing this were doing it for Conservatives. So is it wise to be sending messages, to put on Twitter and social media and to, to be active for partisan politicians when you are in municipal office? Or are you hurting yourself when that happens? See, this is the thing with Andrea Horvath that I think if she becomes mayor, we have to watch for. I don't have a problem with someone going back from being a provincial politician to running for municipal office. I have no issue with that. It's the question of when, if, if she wins, when she gets here, is she able to unravel herself from the partisan stuff? And if, if she is, and I don't have any reason to believe she wouldn't be, if she is, then no problem. But if you come back, whether it's her or anyone else, and you carry all of your partisanship, that is where the problem is. And so with Jim Watson, it sounds, based on what you're describing and what he said, it sounds as if some of that partisanship has carried on. That's where you start to have the problems. Uh, and, well, even if, it, it, not in the decision-making, but even your focus, if you're focusing on more economic issues versus more social issues, I mean, that's going to creep through anyway, whether it's a specific uh, political uh, favoritism or not. I mean, your, your ideology is your ideology. Well, let, okay, let's use our example here in Hamilton again. Let's say Andrea Horvath wins. The latest poll says that she is leading. Let's say she wins. There are some good ideas that the NDP have for how to run things. The Liberals have some good ideas about how to run things. And the Conservatives have some good ideas about how to run things. So if she is capable of leaving the NDP jacket behind and saying, I can pick the good things from each party and work with them to make that happen, then I think she or anyone else who's in this position, it's fine. Who cares Mm -hmm. what your background was? But if you come back to this layer, this this layer of politics, and because of your past, you just can't deal with someone because of their party color, that's a problem. And I don't, I, we don't know if Andrea Horvath can do that. I, I suspect that she'd be able to. I suspect that she'd be able to look out for the betterment of Hamilton and not just be partisan. But that is always going to be, until it happens, that's always going to be a question people are going to ask. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator, coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great uh, show. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.